So we've been in Esther, as you know, and I don't know about you, but it's been a fun book to, to get to study and teach and fellowship in with each other. And the overarching banner, if you will, of making sure that we understand Esther and the takeaway that we get from it is the idea of God's providence. And as we've looked at, one of the, the roots, at least for our word, for providence is provideo from Latin, meaning God's foresight. And really, I think, is, is now that we're in chapter 5 and 6, and we'll get to 7 and 8, we really kind of see that coalesce in, in, in the book. And what's important for us to remember is that the book of Esther was written as historical literature, so it's not wisdom literature, it's not um, a book of history uh, as others are. But it's really written as a literary work, still inspired and breathed upon by the Holy Spirit through a human writer. But uh, as we looked at, especially last week, the, the nuance, the literary devices that uh, God wrote into the story to hopefully clue us in a little bit more to give us, honestly, it's a little entertaining if you read it. Um, but I think it also speaks to to the message and to the glory of God within the story more than what we would get if we just read through it without taking the time to really uh, get dig into it. I've shared this with you before. My, my English teacher in high school uh, would always say, you know, so what about it? So we read a section of, of a piece of literature, and she'd say, so what about it? You know, and then we'd give a response, and she, she'd say, no, so what about it? And we'd go through this over and over until we really got to the heart of what the author's intent was or what we could best understand it to be. And I think we need to do that with the book of Esther. I think oftentimes we're, we settle for the headlines, we settle for the big dramatic things, which is good, which is fine. They're easy to make uh, messages out of if you're a preacher. They're easy to, to, to gain knowledge from. But I think we really see the glory of God throughout the book when we take a little bit of time to slow down and look at the different elements so last week, we kind of looked at one of these transition periods or points in Esther. Uh, it's really the dramatic climax to the book in terms of literary device, but it's not the turning point yet of the story. And we'll get to that again in, in a second here. But what that does is it, it takes, as much as Esther is the hero of the book, it takes or it limits the glory that is given to her and, and puts it back on God when we see what the real turning point is. And so Esther, last week we looked at how she had this exchange with Mordecai. She learned of the plot to kill the Jews, and she asked Esther, she commanded, or Esther commanded Mordecai to fast and have the people of Susa, the Jews in the city, to fast as well for three days. And at the end of three days, she would approach the king and intercede on her people's behalf. And that famous line, if I die, I die. And so we looked at the drama in, in her preparation and her approach and, and, and put ourselves in her shoes as she might approach the king and realizing that this could be her last day, her last couple moments on earth if she did not receive that favor one more time. We talked last week about the fact that it, it's a historical fact, or at least there, there's a lot of historical support uh, where they found reliefs written on the walls of, of pictures of the 
Persian king, and right behind the Persian king's throne is a guard, a, a, a grim reaper, if you will, with a massive sword or a massive um, axe ready to behead whoever didn't receive that favor from the king for approaching. And so we saw that Esther did receive that favor, that she, using that favor, invited the king, invited Haman to a banquet, to a feast in their name and in their honor. And the king again says, well, what can I do for you, Esther? You know, tell me and I will grant it to you up to half my kingdom, which is a, an idiom, a sign of generosity. And she says, well, this matter is so grave and, and so important that why don't, why don't, why don't I, if, if it pleases the king, why don't we wait one more day and, and I'll throw you another feast and we'll drink and we'll be merry and, and then I will let my petition be known. And so that's where we come in today is uh, just after the first feast, before the second one, Haman being proud and, and excited, almost giddy, thinking that here he is, he gets to be a fly on the wall, not even a fly on the wall, but a fly at the table between the king, the emperor of Persia, and his queen. That the queen would see fit, would uh, beckon him by name to be a part of this exchange. And so we pick up in chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And Haman went out that day joyful after the first feast, and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman leaves the first feast full of pride and joy. He gathers his family. He gathers his friends to gloat. He says, look at me. I've got ten sons, which sons in, in Persia, if, if you had multiple sons of Persia, it was a, a high honor. Uh, there's a tradition that or myth maybe tradition that the king of persia would send a special gift to the man in the in the in the empire who had the most sons each year and so here Haman is he's uh, been advanced in the kingdom to basically the highest post he can get other than being king a lot of commentators will say that he probably did want to be king and wanted to plot a way to get there after xerxes after Ahasuerus. And so he, he has many sons, he has many riches, he has advanced as high as he can go, and now he's being, to, being invited to sit at the king's table with the queen. So he, he gloats about it. He really lusted after that honor, after that sense of respect, after that sense of fear and trembling that he would instill in others. He 
likely saw the king and saw the, the real fear that the king imposed on others and wanted to be feared in a similar way. And so Mordecai at the gate, we can assume that he was, we know that he was done fasting. Uh, we can assume that he was back in his position probably to keep an eye on things or to, to uh, better witness what was going on. And so Haman leaves the feast, and, and there Mordecai is, and Mordecai doesn't stand. And so Haman's wrath is, again, filled in his heart. So much so that despite this glory that's been, that he has attained. Now, it's interesting that Haman, at, at least as, as I can recall in the book, and especially in this part, there, there's no mention of favor given to Haman. Just what he is, what he wants, what he thinks. And so he gloats about his riches. He gloats about his honors. He gloats about everything he has. And in verse 13, he says, Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Now, I don't know about you, but I would hope that if I had achieved that much, that, that I wouldn't let one person rob me from enjoying that. Now, we know that Haman, just, just who he is, that, that, there, there's not a lot for us to identify with. Um, he was almost, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? <laughs> he was almost predisposed because of his heritage to be at odds with Mordecai, to hate the Jews, as we've talked about before. So, what's the counsel that is given to him? It's interesting that throughout this book, uh, the, the main figure in the section or in the vignette that we read is always looking for counsel from somebody else, from another man, at least between, Morde- uh, between Haman and King Ahasuerus. It's interesting that King Ahasuerus, at least as the dialogue flows, never really challenges the advice he's given but just takes it for what it's worth, and we see how that sets him up, sets Haman up to fail in the end. So Haman, hears his wife and his friends, and they say to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. He had the gallows made. The, The gallows being 50 cubits high were likely 75, 80 feet tall. Think about that seven or eight stories high. It would have been probably the tallest, the biggest structure in all the city, in all the capital of the Persian Empire, even. They didn't have cranes. They didn't have steel. They didn't have a building with twigs. And so it would have likely risen above even the palace, this gallows, 70 feet high. Now, that some might read um, a pike. That would have been the, the what we better know as the Persian way. Uh, I don't know honestly that it that it changes anything fundamentally, but the idea is that the the Persians would hang or would would stick on a pike their enemies and put them on display to be seen throughout the city as, as a warning, as a way to instill fear. And so here Haman's advice that he receives and that he follows through on is to. Uh, devise a way for for Mordecai to be hanged upon such an edifice, something so tall and high that it could have been seen throughout the capital. 
that's the extent to which he hated Mordecai. That's the extent to which it burned within him that it took his joy or whatever pleasure he could try to find in his riches and his pride, and it meant nothing to him. If we go to chapter 6 now, so we have that in the backdrop. You can imagine the, the gallows being able to be seen from the palace. That same night as, as the king slept, on that night the king could not sleep, it says verse 1, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, verse 3. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? So remember Mordecai, I think it's been um, at least three years, maybe even five. I'm mixing up my timeline all of a sudden. It's been a number of years since Mordecai interceded for the king and, and heard of this plot being an official in the court and, and sent word through Esther that there was an assassination plot. Now, uh, Jewish books of history and other uh, sources, not the Bible, uh, but some speculate that Haman was actually a part of this assassination plot, but, but, but was not implicated. Uh, and that goes to his lust for power, his lust for fear, for people to fear him, and uh, the idea that he himself wanted to be made king. And so... Mordecai saves the king's life, and, and nothing happens. No recognition is given, no parade is thrown, no pat on the back, no award, no television press conference. He's just left to live his life. And so the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had just prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman's there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So the king now wants to reverse this almost injustice. I guess you could say injustice that was done to Mordecai. You see, in Persia, it was traditional. It was uh, a matter of course for the king for to reward those subjects who had been loyal and, and especially loyal to him or achieved great things. And so it was traditional for them to reward them with riches or titles or prestige. And so it have almost been shameful for, for King Ahasuerus to have forgotten Mordecai, especially in saving his life. So here we have a setting where something we've all experienced, a, a sleepless night. And rather than toss and turn or fight it or, you know, take a, Take a Benadryl. The, the king says, well, bring, bring the chronicles to me. Let, me. let me hear about my greatness. Let me hear about what we have done in this kingdom. Or it was, let's read so I can try to fall asleep. Nevertheless, it just so happens that the, the pages that they chose to read. Now think, you know, he, he's been a king for eight, nine years. He's waged war halfway around the world, at least in their time. He's 
gathered riches. He has 127 provinces. It could have been any thousands of pages of chronicles for his reign. And it's not like he went like this and strummed through the book. It's, it's his, his attendance happened upon the section where he forgot Mordecai who saved his life. A sleepless night between the two feasts that Esther would throw. A sleepless night, the same night that Haman would erect a gallows to hang Mordecai. We know that the name of God isn't expressly written in the book of Esther, but how can we not see his hand at work for his people? So the, young, the king's young men told him that Haman is there in the court, and the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. Now remember, Haman, having been advised by his wife and by his friends, had erected these gallows. His wife had said, go in the morning, get permission from the king to hang Mordecai. So he's there bright and early first thing before the cock crows, before the alarm goes off, and he's ready. He's waiting. He, he wants to put Mordecai on those gallows. I don't know what kind of story he would have told to, to, you know, what type of deception he would have employed, but we know he probably would have had to do something. So the king didn't know expressly that it was Mordecai, but even now he's put in this place where the king asks him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Let me think about that king. Oh, good king. Let me think about who you'd want to delight. Who would you want to honor that you delight in? Me, I, you know, I've, I've got the riches. I've got all those sons. I've risen to power in your, in your kingdom. I've sat at the table with just you and your wife. Oh, let me think about that. It's interesting that he doesn't ask for advancement because we know that he thought it was for himself. There was no place for him to advance. So instead, he, 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 he devises this show. Really, honestly, something that was probably in our eyes insubstantial. And so Haman says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Listen to how many times he says that, that title, almost as if he's saying in his head, wow, the king, he wants to delight in me. Who else would he want to delight in but me? He, just that mantra, the, that, that, that depth of pride and arrogance. Verse 7, <clears throat> and Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor. See, there it is. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. There it is again. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So the idea here is, 
uh, it would have been traditional, it would have been well known that uh, one way to honor somebody, uh, even a myth that when a, a regular person was bestowed upon and, and, and enabled or given permission to wear the king's robes, that there was some magical transaction that, that honored um, that person, that individual. So uh, it would have been substantial in the eyes of Haman as far as, you know, what more could he have asked for from the king? You know, I've already been given all this. I've, I've, I've earned this. I've, you know, I've had ten sons, and I've become the, your top official. Why don't you parade me around and make sure that, that everyone in the city, everyone in the capital knows who I am, knows that I'm your right-hand guy, knows that, that you couldn't love me more, king. And so he says, put the royal robes on him, put the, the, the crown on the horse, because if you put it on the man, it would have meant that he was king. That wouldn't work, but at least the crown could be there and put him on, on a horse that the king has rode, ridden. So this idea that you, for a day you get to almost be king, and, and again, that kind of reinforces the, the extra biblical narrative that Haman wanted to be king. Verse 10, the king said to Haman, hurry, don't wait, hurry. It's been long enough since justice, since, since uh, reward has been given. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Hurry, Haman, it's not you, but it's your arch rival, your nemesis, the guy who won't honor you, the guy who you want to kill. Do exactly what you have said and leave nothing out. Do it to him. Honor Mordecai. Haman, Mr. Enemy of the Jews, honor Mordecai, the Jew. This is probably one of the most fun, the, the most ironic, the most comical sections in Scripture, all of Scripture. I think that ought to make ought to ought to clue us in and really try to glean what what God wants to speak to us out of this section, out of Esther in general. The guy walks in, he thinks I've got it all. Now I've got a gallows built. I'm going to get permission to kill this guy that won't submit to me, that won't fear me, Mordecai, this Jew. You know, he'd be dead in 10 months anyway because of the decree that had already been written against the Jews. But he hated Mordecai so much. It was such a thorn in his side that he couldn't wait, that he wanted him dead today. And because of a sleepless night, because of a page in a book, King Ahasuerus chooses to honor and remember Mordecai. Verse 11, so Haman <laughs> took the robes and the horse. I can imagine the king right then and there realizing how long it had been since he rewarded Mordecai. I can imagine him taking off his robe right there, his, his crown right there, and, and, you know, that horse he had come in on. I don't know that, but the visual is kind of fun. You can imagine Haman just trying to keep his poker face. 
So Haman took the robes and the horse. He dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Can you imagine Haman having to work himself up to try to get to that point to yell that out in front of him? It's got to be enough to lead that horse, but another to, Thus shall it be done to the king, to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 12, the Mordecai returned to the king's gates, right back to the place he started, right back to the position he was given, right back to his humble spot. But Haman hurried to his house. You see a lot of hurrying in this section. The drama kind of builds up and speeds up. and He hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And his wise men and his, wi- and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Thanks, wife. If Mordecai before whom you begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. But surely will fall before him. She at least, still not Haman, but she at least could see the writing on the wall. Maybe she had heard of times of old of the glory of the God of Israel going before his people, conquering anyone who stood in their way. Maybe she understood the historical friction between the Amalekites and the people of God. Maybe she could just see in the moment and see that whoever was behind this Jew was greater than he who was behind Haman. Regardless, she saw, she knew Haman couldn't. Even in his distress, even in his his humiliation, he was so blinded by his pride that he couldn't see what was unfolding before him. One more night, 24 hours. Esther, having approached the throne, being given favor, having the king accept her first invitation to a feast, she could have said, oh, man, this is going well. Let's just, let's just get it out there. And who knows what would have happened. Let's just let, forget the second feast. God, I'm just going to go for it now and, and, and ask the king to, to spare me. An extra night, a sleepless night, a reading of a book, a remembrance of a man who was a Jew. I'd say put yourself in Haman's shoes, but I can't. I can't put myself in his shoes. It Woe to him who is an enemy of God and God's people. Should we ever feel the need to really defend ourselves? Let's remember who's really in control. I could read this section of scripture over and over and just, if anything, for comedic relief, but just to stand in awe. 
of who God is and how he orchestrates things. I was tempted to take us all the way through chapter 7 because just it, it, it flows and it, the pace quickens, but we'll, we'll tackle that next week. One thing I want to pull out of, of this scripture today is kind of the obvious, but we might as well make sure we understand it and, and do a heart check. But if, if there's any example in the Bible, it's probably Haman of the fact that pride goes before a fall, isn't it? We know we'll get there in the next couple of weeks, but we know that, that Haman is soon to be hung, hanged on his own gallows. Galatians 6.3, Paul writes to the church, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We may not be to the level that Haman is at, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, we've we've seen in the past and we know to be careful in the future that there are times where we think we're a little bit more than we are and, and we realize that the, just the, the snare of deception that that lays for ourselves, don't we? James 4, 6, we all know this one, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Mordecai having this great procession being uh, walked on the king's horse in the king's robes with the king's crown all through the city with his arch enemy having to proclaim how much the king delights in Mordecai. And it's very understated in, 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 in the book of Esther, but I just it's something I hang on to, that visual of Mordecai dismounting, realizing he's still got two hours on his work day and heading right back to the king's gate. Just a complete opposite of the man who was trying to murder him. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. I, I hadn't remembered that one. And when I read it last night, I, I think that's perfect for poor Haman. Haman, he couldn't see beyond himself. He really couldn't see beyond his own two feet and beyond his big head. I think that's probably why Mordecai angered Haman so much. Because Haman didn't have a perspective on the big picture. He couldn't appreciate everything he had been able to achieve, which no matter who you are, it, you have to have some appreciation for. The fact that he had risen so high to the top post in the empire of Persia, that he had had ten sons, which sounds hard. Not something I'm going to try for. That he had ga gained so many riches that he could pay off the king to say, hey, give me, give me permission to go kill this people, this people who are of no value to you, king. Let me pay you and get rid of them for your sake, king. Though we might never get, and God willing, we never will even start, but to the point that Haman was at, we can in some ways identify with him. I think we have to ask ourselves what little issues or 
disturbances are magnified in our lives. And we need to ask ourselves, why are they magnified? I think, you know, Haman had this sense about himself that he was so great, so big, that it was almost like looking at yourself or looking through the world with a magnifying glass or a telescope, and you're looking at all your own deeds, all your own glory. And so, you know, if you look at, you know, your your hand and you've got a magnifying glass, all you're going to see is you know, that much of who you are, and, and you're not going to see the world around you, but if you've got something that disturbs you on that space, in that place, even if it is very insignificant compared to the big picture, it's going to look really large to you. And I think that's what Haman did to Mordecai, is he said, this guy, he, he he's at the gate every day. Every day he dishonors me. Every day he, he disrespects me and, and fails to fear me like he should and fails to honor me like he should. Even though there's a hundred, even though there's a thousand others who will bow as soon as I round the corner, this one guy. And his pride was so great that he couldn't look beyond the one person, that one little thing. And it, it ate at him so much that it caused him to be named the enemy of the Jews. It was really Mordecai's indifference toward Haman was really disproportionate to the glory, to the riches, to the honor that Haman had already achieved. Why risk all of that for one person who is a thorn in your side? We can look at that. We see that pretty easily in this story. But in our own lives, there are little things, little uh, circumstances, uh, people who, who treat us uh, in one way or another, even friends that uh, just rub us the wrong way sometimes. And we hold on to some of those things, don't we? We let them grow disproportionate to what God has done in our lives. We let uh, a, a circumstance or a disappointment feed and, and influence the, our larger perspective where God is saying, don't look at that, but look at me. I'm getting ahead of myself, but if, if you think back, and in a drunken feast, the king summons his queen Vashti, and, and she refuses to come just for one night, and he de- deposes her, and Esther, this Jewish orphan, somehow is plucked from her home and forced into this harem and made to prepare for a year and spends one night in the king's bedchambers and is suddenly queen. And then for four years, all she has is that position but no purpose that we talked about last week. And then she gets wind of this plot to wipe out her people. She prepares for three days and fasting. She goes before the king. If I die, I die. And she says, well, why don't you come to a party? I'm going to throw you. Maybe on a whim or I'd like to believe led by the Lord. She says, let me actually wait one more night, king. And let me then tell you my, my petition. One sleepless night. One reading from a book. All in and of themselves, very... Honestly, if we look at them just in vignettes, very insignificant things. And yet God was working and orchestrating through them the entire time. Those things in our lives, those insignificant things, even the things that we can't see beyond that seem to hurt us or seem to bring us down or we can't understand or we can't see the purpose in. 
May God use those. May we have the patience and the trust in Almighty God, our Savior, to know that He is in control and He wants to use even those things in our life that we've written off or even those things in our life that are a thorn. See, Haman couldn't see beyond himself. He couldn't see the perspe- with perspective. He couldn't see the bigger picture. His pride was so inflated that it altered his reality. When we can't see, when you don't have depth perception, you fall. I think especially if we look and think back to our fallenness, before we really surrender to the Lord, we, we might be able to relate a little bit more. We realize that there are things that there were prideful things, that there were thorns in our side that the enemy was using to keep us from the purpose of God in our lives. I think now in our redeemed state, the antidote and, and the, the prevention measures are to realize that we aren't to be king, that our pride should never want to be king of our own lives, of our own way, of our own circumstances, but we now serve and have submitted to the king of creation. To, so the antidote, the, the, um, the readiness is to realize who is king in our lives. And we reaffirm that every day. We refer, reaffirm that every time we come together and worship. We reaffirm that every time in our lives and we pray, realizing that we have to pray out of a place of humility, that we have to uh, appeal to God who is greater. And we read his word. We develop that right understanding and that right relationship that we talk about. Secondly, out of this section, I think it's something we all know, but again, it's worth saying that we need to beware of flattery. Haman's friends and family flattered him, didn't they? Well, times were good. They, they were quick to come and quick to hear him gloat and even sat and endured through it. So they knew how powerful he is. He knew, they knew how rich he was. Out of that ego, they, they, they told him what they, they knew he'd want to hear. They told him, well, just get rid of this problem. Just build the highest gallows you can custom order. Put the man on it and be done with this. He's no use to you. He is worthless to you. He is your enemy. There's no point in continuing to let him be that thorn in your side. They failed to seek for him any sort of personal growth, any sort of levity, any sort of uh, perspective, didn't they? Instead, they would rather just tell him what they wanted to hear. Proverbs 29.5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Haman's friends, even his wife, his family, helped ensnare him. They helped hasten his fall. They encouraged him to build the very gallows that he would be hanged upon the next day. What an irony. The people that he called to and summoned he sent his messengers, hey, hey, bring so-and-so, uh, bring, bring the governor, bring uh, the senator. Let them hear, come here and let me tell them about my rise to power, my rise to fame, the fact that I sat with the king and queen, the fact that 
they want another dinner and, and have me in attendance, just me, just me, just me. Everyone's there to pat them on the back. Do we really think they are there to, to truly be a friend? They, they wanted to ride his coattails. They wanted to get something out of him. So they flattered him. They told him what he wanted to hear. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We could do a whole sermon on, on friendship and, and, and just that. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We've got such a misconception of friendship these days, don't we, that you know, if a friend hurts us or annoys us, that they're no use to us. We won't go totally into that, but just flattery is such a deceptive, such a, just an evil thing. Pride and, and flattery just go so hand in hand, but they just feel the flame. They just feel the, the, the hasting to our own destruction. If you're looking for people, and that's one of your criteria for friendship, is if they make me feel good, you're you're probably on the wrong track. With who you allow to influence your life, who you allow to speak into your life, we must be discerning about the people we surround ourselves with, and how they affect us. We must be discerning about how we affect others, and and whether or not we are speaking life, and the word of truth, being led by the Spirit, or if we are casting a net before our own friends or who we would call friends. Thirdly, out of the section, this is a theme we've already seen. It's a theme we'll look at again. Reversal. A decree had already gone out. A plan was already in place to murder Mordecai and to later wipe out all his people. Esther had already approached, but the, 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 the destiny, the, the outcome had gone unchanged still. But because of a sleepless night, because of a chronicle in a book, there was no way that Haman could go and then, having led him around the city in the king's royal robes on the king's horse with the king's crown, come back and say, by the way, king, I know I'm your second in command. You love me so much, so why don't let why don't you let me hang Mordecai, the guy I just led around in your name to be honored all before the people. Those gallows are still sitting there, king. They, they're going unused. Let me do something with them. A sleepless night for a pagan king to honor a man he forgot who had saved his life. We'll see that that plays into King, to Queen Esther's request later. We'll see how that really sets it up to seal the deal and seal Haman's fate, but also cement the outcome of reversal for the people of God. We think back to Joseph. Joseph's word to his family is for you. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that so ma- that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Haman meant to honor himself, but instead 
he cast honor upon Mordecai, his arch enemy, the man who he wanted to kill, to destroy, to annihilate. By honoring Mordecai, Haman was saving the man he intended to murder. Haman could have said, well, king, it's been five years. He's still a loyal subject. Maybe we just let this one go. It's no use admitting that you missed it, that you were wrong, that you forgot somebody. He's still forgotten. Nobody said anything. Let's just leave it be. But in his pride and his selfishness and his greed, his lust for attention, he, he just assumed, Haman assumed that the king's statement that you know he who the king delights in was meant to honor him. And in that assumption, in that pride, he gives Mordecai that place, that attention, that honor. And it was likely ne- necessary to save Mordecai's life. He very well could have said, King, it's been a number of years. This is the only book. Let's burn it. <laughs> Forget it happened. Haman, as we mentioned, had, had already, the, 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 the decree had been sent. It was in the hands of every province. On this day, rise up, kill, destroy, annihilate the Jews, every one of them. It was already out there. He already had the king's ring, the king's authority to write that edict. And instead, he let pride get in the way. And not only would it fail, mean that he failed in his, his, his purpose, Haman, but that he would lose his own life because of it. I think it's safe to say that God's providence is always working in our lives. That we shouldn't underestimate the idea, the significance of a sleepless night. But that we need to continually be mindful in our walk of the supernatural, of the undertones and and the working behind the scenes of that God is working in our lives, that God is working in the people around us. See, that sleepless night, as we mentioned, it takes the the emphasis off of Esther, even though she's the heroine of the book. It reminds us that God is very much there, very much at work. But it took time, didn't it? Queen Vashti, she had been deposed nine, nine years ago. Esther had been named queen four or five years ago. Mordecai, same thing, forgotten for four or five years. We often hear God speak to us or read a promise that we feel that, that is timely for our lives, and two days pass as we go, oh, God, that, that you know, thanks, but that mustn't have been for me. <laughs> month passes and man god did i even hear you is that even actually in the bible a year passed man god i'm kind of bitter about this i you know that you, you didn't fulfill your promise for me are we on god's timing or are we on ours do we have spiritual eyes to see or or do we only look at the natural do we only look at the things that impact us immediately 
We never know what little thing God is setting in motion that he's putting in place to become a bigger part of his plan, a bigger part of his purpose for our lives. Will we have the humility to trust him in that? Will we have the eyes to, to, to look in hindsight and see his hand and see his, his fingerprints in our lives throughout and honor him for what he's done? Will we have the courage to move forward, to trust him in the next steps, to obey like Esther did? If I die, I die. We'll leave on this note. The, f- the lasting thing about reversal, as we see it in the Bible, is that it's not just a redemption to restore to a prior place, to a status quo, but it's a reversal and a redemption to bring us to a higher level. The people of Israel, they, they, they were very much the bomb of the barrel. They were very much a forgotten tribe in a pagan nation. And yet because of this series of events, Queen Esther has honored Mordecai ascends to the second command of the empire. And the people of God are recognized. These people are honorable people whose God is intervening behind them and, and for them. And even in our losses then, may we be obedient, may we be devoted enough to allow God to redeem and reverse those things and bring victory to our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you're worth it. You're worthy of it all. Really, Jesus, we we need no other victory but yours over sin. And yet you've chosen to lead us through this life, to sanctify us, to bring us closer to you, to instill holiness in us, to let us participate in your plan and in the spreading of your gospel and the growing of your kingdom thank you help us to put aside anything that would cause us to be proud help us to be true friends to one another and speak truth in life rather than flattery Help us to grab hold of the victories you want to bring about in our lives. Jesus, you're worthy of it all. May we be solely, may we be wholly devoted to you and to the furtherance of your name. Let's stand and worship this morning.